With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Love Talk Radio. Hello, this is Gigabit Nation, broadband talk radio. I'm your host, Craig Settles, and I want to thank you for taking time to be with us today as we provide useful information and insights to help public, private, and nonprofit organizations get more, better broadband everywhere it needs to be in the U.S. Now, for some of y'all folks who have a, a good handle on history, you may recall that the Harlem Renaissance was a cultural movement. It started in the in the 20s, and it was a transformation of the community through a cultural explosion of new art, entertainment, and entrepreneurialism. And there's a new movement, if you will, via Silicon Harlem, which was launched in February this year, which is um, uh, leading a, a transformation of the community, but this time being led by technology. And so the idea is to once again make education, art, culture, uh, and entrepreneurialism the agents of change for the community, but to incorporate new technologies with them to, to, to facilitate this transformation, including the use of broadband. With us today is Bruce Lincoln, who is the executive producer of Silicon Harlem, and as the first Ford Fellow in Education Technology as a design scientist and as a high-speed network developer, Bruce has been in the Internet trenches for quite a while and is positioned very well, in my opinion, to be one of the new leaders in this, uh, in what I would call this, this new uh, Harlem Renaissance. So, Bruce, welcome to the show. Bruce, welcome to the show. Hi, how are you? I'm doing all right. Um, let's talk about Harlem. What's uh, you know before we before we went live, uh, you mentioned that Harlem has, is one of the fastest growing neighborhoods in New York in terms of uh, technology uh, startups. What's the scoop, and why haven't we heard more about this? Well, um, you know. Our growth in Harlem is, in some respects, overshadowed by the overall growth of tech startup activity here in the city of New York. I think most people have heard about how rapidly tech startups are uh, springing up here, how they're getting funded. But as um, an organic part of that growth process, Harlem is also one of the fastest-growing communities when it comes to tech startup activity. And um, Silicon Harlem was was founded in order to take advantage of this growing community. I went in the fall to a number of smaller meetups of color, um, blacks in tech, black techies, and uh, met a number of the key people who are now leading the way from everything in coding to social media and Silicon Alley. But they lived in Harlem and would hang out here, you know, after work. So I was involved in the development of My Image Studios, which was a 20,000-square-foot multimedia entertainment space that my company, Urban Cyberspace, had the um, opportunity to um, design the Internet for. 
So it was a perfect venue to sort of uh, invite this audience in and have them come. Um, and the idea was to do it at least once a month. Mm-hmm. And and so you started so you started Silicon uh, Harlem, and and again when we were chatting before we went live, you know it has a fairly impressive um, six month history in terms of just achievements done. I think it's important to kind of lay that out for folks to really get a sense of you know what have you um, accomplished in a relatively short period. We're talking you know six months or so. Yeah, we had our first meetup February 26th at Miami Studios. The idea there was to just help bring audience to help introduce people to this new multimedia entertainment space. Their focus was on uh, film and music, and they had a bar and restaurant. And um, myself and my friends felt it would be a great place to bring these tech startup folks who love to come after work and talk to one another and uh, eat and drink. So we had our first meetup. And we uh, themed it around the launch of Around the Way, which we thought was appropriate since it's an app that helps you identify where black-owned businesses are. And we did that working with Eric Hamilton and Janine Hosef and Eric Cien and featured them. And we basically uh, realized we had 450 people coming to that event. So we actually were able to download this app across the wireless network simultaneously. So 400 people or more downloaded this app at the same time. So uh, we sort of knew we were onto something after that. Mm-hmm. So now what kinds of um, – now you mentioned that, you know, uh, Congressman Rangel uh, participated in one of the events and will be participating uh, in future events. Uh, what was the nature of that uh, relationship uh, developing and where it's going? Okay, that came out of our May um, event, and the May event was tied into Google. So we were their Google Innovator and Entrepreneur um, site in New York City, and the chief of staff for the council member, Inez Dickens, was there. He's a digital native. His name is Simeon Bannister, and he approached us because he knew that it's important for elected, especially in New York, but of course everywhere, to have a technology platform. In working on supporting um, that idea, I reached out to Congressman Rangel's chief of staff, George Henry, whom I had worked with going back when I was at Columbia as an entrepreneur in residence, and they loved the idea, and they said it was absolutely something Congressman wanted to get behind because he would like to have the gigabit Harlem and the kind of economic development it can give rise to be his legacy. So mm-hmm. we pulled that together, and June 25th, we basically had it at, once again, Miami Studios, had it and had 350 to 400 people seated in the amphitheater, and we had an hour-and-a-half discussion uh, where people let us know their ideas about um, what they would like to see happen in, in Harlem. And we had Verizon committing to helping to grow out the broadband infrastructure in the city of New York. So now we've sort of come from being a meetup to kind of like a political action block, and we've got the support of the congressman. And um, we're getting more support from other cities uh, because they see the uh, kind of power of what we've galvanized. Mm-hmm. So it's it's action, it's uh, networking, it's um, now is there is there a certain amount of um, planning and 
uh, creating sort of an, uh, a structure or or some sort of infrastructure to move forward. I mean, I, I understand where the the direction is. You know, you want to get you know these various accomplishments and so forth. But will will Silicon Harlem become? I don't know the the, the planner slash facilitator. Or who will take on that planning role, and if if someone else does, then what will Silicon Harlem continue to do? Well, Silicon Harlem will actually take on that role um, as the kind of facilitator, but we're made up of a number of organizations, and we have a host committee. Urban Cyberspace is one of them. Ember Media, headed up by my co-founder and co-executive producer, Clayton Banks, is another one. And then we work closely with Around the Way app, which is – Eric Hamilton, Janine Hosef, and Eric Cian. And then we work with uh, Emmeline Stewart from Stewart Films because there's a whole film component. We work with Anthony Jones, who's a major A&R guy at Warner Records because there's a music component. We work with uh, the Harlem Co-Working Group, which is led by an entrepreneur by the name of Yvonne Hamilton. I mean, excuse me, Yvonne Martin, who produced a co-working event for us. So we're going to continue to use, if you will, Silicon Harlem as the umbrella but we're going to start to now look at how we can, um, one, spread it to other cities, and also we're now starting to investigate the proper um, formal organization of Silicon Harlem. Mm-hmm. Now, in a year or so, what do you, at least for now, what do you envision all of this activity looking like in a year? In other words, what do you see being accomplished when, you know, you get to the summer of 2014 and say, you know, we've been at this for, you know, close to a year and a half and we have achieved X or Y, whatever. Well, what's the X or the Y? What do you, what do you see as being What we want to do is make sure that Silicon Harlem touches every form of activity that is focused on the positive development of technology and its promise in Harlem. And then that being the basis for how we would do that in the South Bronx, Queens, Brooklyn, and I'm not going to forget Staten Island, but also (laughs) other urban uh, centers or even potentially rural markets because it's obvious, you know, what technology brings to communities. And if you look at what has happened where Google Fiber has gone, all of a sudden, you know, people are not simply starting up their companies. They're buying houses in communities and raising the property value. We want to see all those kinds of network effects take place in in Harlem. And we mm-hmm. also want to also show that there are people of color who are doing leading activity in the tech space so that we also start to um, attract increasingly more um, venture capital support. Mm-hmm. That is um that is pretty that's pretty awe inspiring actually. I uh you know, I, I have known you for uh, for a couple of years. I think we were on uh this uh, panel on Capitol Hill uh mm-hmm. either last year or the year before and there's a there's a certain or a very definite energy that I see developing in uh in Harlem and in other urban communities and I think it's important that more people know about this uh, because, you know, we, we, we tend to hear lots of negative news about, you know, the problems of the inner city, whereas I look at this, and you can tell me if this is correct or not, but this is pretty much the community taking uh, control of its destiny 
and developing a vehicle to shape its destiny as it moves forward into some space that's economically a much better place than where it is currently. Is that a fair assessment? That's a fair assessment. I want to additionally um, give people the picture that it also has to do with, one, the changing multiculturalization of a Harlem, where we're starting to get more and different people who come out of this space. We're starting to work with our young people who have a facility with technology, different from folks you know, such as myself who began doing this in the 80s, but also the recognition of our electeds and our elders in the community that they have to ne- that we have to now form this kind of collaboration. So that's what Silicon Harlem is good at. You know, myself having been the entrepreneur resident at Columbia University, I'm used to spinning out tech companies. I'm used to working with a lot of different people, um, and that's handy when you're now starting to deal with this type of uh, mixed, if you will, diverse community. And everyone loves Harlem, so that's another reason why we make sure that it's not simply the tech and entrepreneurship, but that it's arts, music, and culture, which also mm-hmm. allows for a broad-based form of inclusion and participation. Mm-hmm. Let me ask this question. You know, um, we, as in we in the technology industry, uh, or a lot of us in the, in the technology industry, you know, we talk bits and bytes. We talk about businesses. We talk about business development. But rarely do we talk about the arts and and cultural issues, how important are these to the well being of a community and you know, and should folks in the in the broadband industry be more aware that broadband is a facilitator of the improvement or the enhancements of art and culture? Um well I I mean I think the way to think of it is the fact that um you have these existing forms of business that have existed in these communities, you know, non-profit cultural organizations have been a major part of the fabric of Harlem, and they create jobs, and of course are a major part of the economic fabric of the city of New York. But increasingly, everyone now has to relate to broadband from the fact they're maintaining websites, the fact they're trying to sell things online. And some nonprofits, such as the Caribbean Cultural Center, with whom I have the pleasure of working with, has actually raised technology project monies to do what in essence is the coming together of art and technology, which is augmented reality. So in that, you have to involve fine artists working within this type of culturally-oriented organization. And then we come in as the tech-no-geek guys to help in that regard. But more so, everyone's life is improved through the arts. And you can't do it in Harlem if you're not talking to our artists and our musicians. But increasingly, we have a huge um, community of filmmakers, all of whom are producing on the web. Mm-hmm. So we actually had uh, one of our events, which was uh, curated by Emily Stewart, where we presented um, actors' reels, directors' reels. We had the local um, audience applaud for what they liked best. And then that led to an online film festival that was all young people based between Atlanta and New York City, all of whom produce all the work on the web. So we have to basically be inclusive and reach out and that's part of the momentum. It isn't just myself and Clayton and the host committee. It's this entire group of uh, 
people who all share and amplify what we do across social media, but we're all just passionate about Harlem as where we live and where we want to work and where we want to make it a better place. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I definitely see where, uh, you know, where, where you're coming from in, in that respect. Um, let's talk about uh, an issue that has, has uh, bugged me for a while, which is, you know, we spend a lot of time talking about broadband development in rural areas because there's a definite need there. Mm-hmm. But I feel, and I'm, I'm hoping I'm not the only person who feels, that we don't give enough time, attention, and probably resources to the fact that broadband in urban areas needs to be better. Now, from your perspective, you know, is broadband adequate for what you're trying to do? I mean, I realize that it's important and people are using it as it is in its current condition, but but could it could be could it be better and if so, how could it be better? Well, I'll talk from the standpoint of being someone who develops advanced networks and I'm, you know, currently speaking to you from the Columbia Institute for Teleinformation. So for some time now as the the country's been talking about the need for broadband. We've been talking about what's the next generation after broadband, which is ultra-broadband. What happens when everyone requires a gigabit connection, whether you're at home and it's a physical connection or you're using a device and it's a wireless connection? That is the driver for the American economy as we move forward, and it includes both rural communities as well as urban communities. And right now, we don't have the kind of fiber optic infrastructure that's nationally deployed and provisioned to support this kind of economic growth. If you begin to look at the fact that you have the rapid growth and adoption, especially among young children of color, teenagers, of uh, wireless devices, the kind of bandwidth consumption on the wireless space is also starting to have to be combined with the kind of consumption needed on the wire line space. And we have to start to um, not discriminate based on location, but think about a national strategy. Because if you're talking about creating smart and green cities with electric cars that are on the Internet and Internet of Things, it's not simply how much bandwidth does an individual need. It's how much bandwidth does the Internet overall need when all of a sudden it's distributed across um, devices, cars, refrigerators, homes. So that's the important way to think about it. I mean, it's a false dichotomy to say it's this sort of need in the urban setting and this sort of need in the rural setting. It's a combined need that has to be addressed. But more so, if you look at the communities that lag, they have certain sets of cultural demographics, predominantly people of color, predominantly low-income people, uh, older people, people who are basically affected by dint of uh, lack of population density or um, geographic distance. Mm-hmm. Altogether, you have to figure out how to solve that, and that's going to require um, broadening out these networks. And I think it has to look at in essence, what you see, what uh, Blair Levin has attempted to do, how do you use local universities as the catalyst for getting local broadband driven by these state-of-the-art applications, many of which aren't what we're being sold commercially, but which are needed as far as human services or telemedicine or teleradiology or, of course, immersive learning. 
those are the kinds of applications which basically can take an America and put it, push us to the forefront once again when it comes to um, access to technology and its promise. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, are how well are we moving toward that? Uh, I, I gather that you're basically saying that, you know, we, we need this and this is our future, but our future, is from an infrastructure perspective, it isn't there yet in, in the inner city. No, well, it's, it's not there yet when you look at um, the needs of cities. I mean, here in New York City, what's really driving this push for uh, ultra-broadband isn't so much the need in the inner city. It's the fact that a startup like Kick, a company like Kickstarter, to grow, they don't have adequate bandwidth when they move from where they were in Silicon Alley to where they now move to get a cheaper office in uh, Williamsburg. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there are issues with the infrastructure there. And I'm not in any way saying that Verizon and Time Warner aren't doing what they're supposed to do within the context of their capital investment because they've made incredible investments in this infrastructure, but it has to continue and it has to meet up with the incredible demand. With an urban, I mean, with a rural area, I think there you absolutely have to not talk about it in terms of telecommunications, but in terms of telecommunications as it supports economic development. And then what are the different elements that can basically foster that kind of economic development? Mm-hmm. Now, do you see um, income as a factor for why, in certain parts of the of New York, uh, the broadband isn't where it where it needs to be? I think on one level it's it's income, but I think it's it's very simple. If you look at what a company such as Verizon has to do when when it has to return a certain level of um, return to its investors, you have to go to those communities where basically they can quickly recoup the cost of uh, deploying this technology. And then other communities basically get lined up after that, if you will, in the queue of how they deploy this. But, I mean, we met with a gentleman by the name of Chris Levendos, and Harlem is actually, you know, very important to um, – you know, Verizon, and they've made a commitment to make sure that, you know, we do have the gigabit infrastructure. Now, what needs to happen in a place like Harlem is, you know, an an entity needs to sort of, if you will, aggregate that demand and then work closely with a Verizon so that that happens. I mean, I've historically worked very close with Verizon from the context of a Columbia University, which, of course, can get their attention. But now Silicon Harlem, in the context of our Gigabit Harlem initiative, we've got Verizon wanting to work with us. So now it's incumbent on the community to sit down with Verizon and really talk about what it is that makes it useful. And that's where you get into the idea of applications and services, and content is a big part of that too. Mm-hmm. So, so you're basically saying that the communities have to help make the business case for the the larger providers, the community has to understand the business case that motivates these companies, and then they're able to now work closely with those companies and work in lockstep to get their needs met. Mm-hmm. 
Now, is there a point that you see where it makes sense for communities to consider uh, building their own networks, or is that viable? You know, because obviously my position for the last couple of years has always been about the community taking the reins and either forming mm -hmm. and owning uh, as part of public-private partnerships or by setting up nonprofit organizations or somehow through some mechanism owning the infrastructure that serves their community. Mm -hmm. um, can we see that happen in, in urban America? And what would that look like in, in, in a community such as, as Harlem if you guys were to take that pact? I mean, I developed a model for that. I don't think that's the best way to go at this point because okay. um, Verizon has made a commitment to um, the deployment of the uh, fiber infrastructure in Harlem. Um, but what we've seen are very successful models. I mean, there's the electric cooperative that I just heard about that is in southern Virginia that um, basically um, because they made an economic development case, so you have to make an economic development case for why. You can't make a case based on a telecommunications model. It has to be an economic development model. But um, what they did in southern Virginia, because they lost so many jobs, they made the case for why they needed the broadband you know, fiber infrastructure. And then they were able to raise, I think, 40 to $60 million from the local tobacco association. Mm -hmm. So either way, it's, it's, it's costly. So who has the resources to invest in that? Of course, Verizon has that. And um, if you look at uh, the Broadband in America report, which we produce here at CITI on behalf of the FCC, investment has increased over time as far as the deployment of these networks. But it still doesn't get to certain areas. So we have to get very creative and think about how we're going to get them in a lot of these underserved communities and their pockets. They're, of course, they're large pockets if you're looking at the Mississippi Delta, but then again, the south side of Chicago represents a pocket where it's needed. But there's a lot of activity uh, starting to happen there through gigabit squared. But a great many of the very successful municipal uh, fiber optic deployments have been tied into the uh, development ownership of the smart grids. So that's been driven by the local um, electrical companies, and they form successful cooperatives. Um, Chattanooga, Tennessee, mm -hmm. um, like as I said, in southern Virginia. But then there's other models. Uh, a good friend of mine, Dr. Andrew Cohill of Design9, has been putting together all sorts of different hybrid models that have helped deploy fiber. But it's fiber for attraction of business, retention of business. Uh, keeping the schools relevant so that you have state-of-the-art uh, immersive learning. So it's going to require a lot of different groups to start to collaborate and focus on how to do this. And the large incumbents will have to be a part of it. Comcast will have to play a role, Verizon, Time Warner, but also a lot of the wireless companies that are growing up that you see in a rural Colorado, Montana, or even in parts of Mississippi. All that has to be knit together. So I think what we have to do right now at this inflection point, at the end of the broadband funding from the federal government, and looking at how we can achieve this next uh, iteration of the Internet, is to create, if you will, a national strategic technology plan, one of which has never um, before been developed, but which we could piggyback certainly on the type of uh, data that they're now accruing 
at the uh, Department of Commerce. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the, um, you know, we talked about, uh, you know, the need to, to be creative in our thinking. One of the areas that is being addressed this week, in fact, at the FCC is the E-rate uh, program. And, and I'm, I'm pretty sure a lot of folks know, but for those who don't, E-rate is a special fund that is created or has has been created um, based on monies taken out of our um, telephone bills. It's basically set aside for Universal Service Fund, though that's being revamped. But part of the USF fund was this thing called E-rate, which sends money specifically to schools, K-12 schools, libraries, and the like, and um, and has enabled technology to uh, to flourish in that manner. But there are, have been problems with that. Now, how how well have, do you see or have you seen E-rate be used in um, urban areas? And what, you know, if you were to have a, you know, a prime spot on some, you know, committee addressing the FCC, what would you recommend they do to make uh, E-rate a better program? Well, one of the first products I worked on was here at Columbia University, and that was with a gentleman by the name of Dr. Robert McClintock, who's since retired here from the university. But we raised the initial fund to put the internet into, at first, six schools and 100 schools here in the city of New York. And we funded that ultimately through E-rate funding. So we actually mm-hmm. had a major E-rate-funded nonprofit ISP located here at Columbia University. So that was one of the earliest ways in which those monies were used, I think, over the ensuing years, and we're now talking about 15 years from that point, it's begun to be focused on rural areas because they really lack um, density in population and density when it comes to the number of incumbent providers there. I think what we have to look at is allow the E-rate to not only cover infrastructure but but also cover equipment, as well as allow every school to then become a wireless hub for the transmission of high-speed wireless to the local community, and in that way link up housing developments and local nonprofits. And that's been a model that I've been working on for some time. We actually were involved early on with that in 2002. It was spearheaded by a young man by the name of Nick No, who worked for Mouse at the time and who crafted a broadband city report in 2002, looking at what New York City could do. And it looked at a number of things. One, expand what you could do with E-rate funds, but as well, look at how the city could reinvest what it spent for its own incumbent infrastructure with Verizon and invent some innovative public policies to look at how we would address our franchise agreements. Um, And I think that work should be looked at again and reconsidered in the light of how we have to think about not urban or rural, but, you know, as you have a gigabit nation, a United States where everyone has access to the kind of bandwidth that allows them to use the kind of personal applications that can better their lives. And I think the other part of this, which missing from this conversation, no one talks about the kind of applications and services that can be deployed. And as someone who builds networks, we don't build a network just to build it. 
we build a network because we're going to then provision with certain types of applications. So to me, that's been missing. I, I know they've had these meetings in Lafayette, Louisiana, and I think they had a competition in Chattanooga where the idea is we built it, and now what can you develop as far as apps? Now that's cool because once you have the infrastructure, you can, of course, attract these companies. But I think that has to happen up front. Especially, say, if you look at how you might want to do that, say, in a Jackson, Mississippi, that has very interesting incumbent infrastructure because it's left over from MCI WorldCom, but also they have lots of dark fiber that connects to their towers. So I think it's a uh, it's a new conversation that has to bring a number of different groups together. Um, and I think the idea of why you want in the schools is because you want to think of the schools not as an isolated place in the community, but the schools as a part of the larger community where the school is just now part of the whole distributed network that kids, parents, families, and even local community-based organizations relate to as they improve the life of their community. So I think there's another methodology that has to be applied to this, and that of social entrepreneurship. If you look at the rise of social entrepreneurship in the third world, in the developing world, it's all been tied to mobile devices, smartphones, um, as the way in which broadband has been adopted. But then you have these intrepid entrepreneurs who go and create these incredible businesses. So I think we can also learn from what's been happening outside of this country and apply it in the reverse to this country. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things that... Uh you know, they, they sort of have an advantage in some of these underdeveloped countries is because they haven't built in or they don't have a legacy of copper. And, and because they don't have a legacy of copper, you know, you just kind of look at the world and go, well, there's no need to go the copper route. We may as well just go straight to mobile, straight to wireless and do, you know, all kinds of crazy things and micro loans and small businesses and, you know, all kinds mm-hmm. of entrepreneurship things going on. Um, we We sort of have that. They sort of have that option, and we kind of have, as as Blair and uh, Milo Medin was talking about yesterday on um, this uh, webcast thing we were doing. You know, the 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 incumbents have this legacy, and they're trying to wring every dime they can from it, and mm-hmm. this sort of becomes an impediment. Um, which is actually probably a good point to ask the question. Um, how do we, you know, inner inner cities along with rural areas, how do we get leverage when you have needs that are in some respects divergent? I mean, you know, the community has a need to grow entrepreneurs. It has a need to foster economic development for itself. But the large incumbents, and to a certain extent smaller telcos as well, but they have a need to make a, a set amount of, of profit. And sometimes those don't really work well together. Mm-hmm. How do we get past all that? I mean, how does the community get past all of that? I think, well, I don't know if communities can do that on their own. I think there's a general lack of capacity that certain communities have. Of course, certain communities um, move past it. I mean, the model in Chattanooga was very interesting in that the mayor helped bring together all the different disparate, disparate parts of the city council and they all agreed that this made sense for the economic growth of Chattanooga. But um, I think, you know, and I've talked about this in a white paper, I talk about advanced community broadband and where I look at the idea of social entrepreneurship. I think we have to apply social enterprise 
um, to address some of these issues. And yes, it's true that the idea of uh, community ownership of uh, the infrastructure basically gives rise to a certain type of incumbent resistance, but there's also the w place in which you can figure out how to work with these incumbents. Mm -hmm. um, or, or I think it's in tribute to you know Blair's idea, you look to the local universities. The local universities are spinning out those folks who both want to, say, work for, actually increasingly want to work for startups, if, like here at Columbia. But they have the engineering expertise to apply some of these um, ideas to local communities. But the ultimate issue is where is the investment dollars going to come from? Mm -hmm. right? There's not going to be another tranche of money from the broadband stimulus. And basically it's these um, well-heeled, large-scale technology corporations who have the uh, you know, infrastructure. And then is Google going to come forward and invest in every one of these um, potential activities? Now, actually, here in Harlem, we would be very interested in working with Google. And actually, part of my uh, homework is, uh, is to reach out to Milo Medin at um, Google because he's a close friend and colleague of uh, of Robert Atkinson, who's here at CITI. But mm -hmm. I, mean, I think, once again, it's what's the business model? I think it's a social venture model. But I'm not saying it's a nonprofit model. Mm -hmm. um, and it has to bring together the, the various constituencies that can basically bring this alive. So the universities have to have a role, but also the public sector and the private sector. And the private sector might not necessarily even represent the local telecom. It might be other businesses that can see why it's important. For me, the driver for broadband into underserved communities, whether it's urban or rural, is the idea of telework. Um, with the reverse outsourcing of jobs that otherwise would be sent overseas, and quite so often they were sent overseas because those countries invested in fiber. Now I want to reverse that trend and create those jobs in local communities. More so we can overlay on top of the um, sunken investment that represents all the public computing centers that were set up. I mean, the city of Chicago has 80 public computing centers. How do you make them sustainable now that the public funding from BTOP is over. So these kind of, I think, innovative, collaborative investments um, can be made to work. Mm -hmm. Now, um, in, in the pursuit of that end, what do you think the the lever would be. I, I think, you know, if we've got communities listening in or representatives from different communities listening in, they say, okay, that's that's a great idea. Trying to reverse this offshoring makes sense. Now, I know in certain rural areas, they have, you know, started to make that pitch, you know, bring, you know, bring your business here, don't send it to India or, or you know, some other, uh, some other country. Um, do, do, do inner, you know, the, do urban centers need to team with urban areas? Do urban centers need to tie in with other urban centers? Like what would be the next, say, steps one, two, three to actually try to affect that change? Well, it starts out, in essence, with sort of what we're doing with our urban cyberspace company, and this is our particular focus. One, because we build these sorts of networks, but also 
it has to be, once again, placed within a larger, if you will, context of what you're trying to do. It's economic development, but it's sustainable development. That's where we can learn from what is being done overseas and then, of course, apply that here. So it requires a number of things. One, a private-public partnership. The reason why I say private-public is that it needs to be driven by a private company working with the public sector, and then that public sector um, community bringing in its historical private partners or even new private partners that um, it can attract. But for me, that begins with, one, looking at how to develop a telework center as a pilot. And you can do that in an existing public computing center, except it has to have a certain size and it has to have a certain type of configuration of equipment. And once you start to create those jobs, right, and we focus on three areas, but in particular, this idea grew out of work that a colleague of mine, David Skernick, did in building um, data conversion centers overseas. As someone who works for a small, women-owned and minority-owned business in Queens, he decided, why can't I do this in my local community when I live in Brooklyn and I see what the need is in Bronx and Harlem? So he basically foresaw the trend and actually was able to, with um, actually uh, government investment at the time and contracts from the Department of Defense, build 10 of these in the United States from like 2002 or so to like 2007. But all these communities have the right things in place. You have public computing centers. You have mission-guided institutions like hospitals, universities. You have a corporate sector. They all produce paper, and all that paper ultimately has to be digitized because it's important to have this type of on-demand ability to retrieve these documents. Well, that can be broken into um, a work ladder where the bulk scanning is done by an individual who speaks Spanish and is just bulk scanning documents. That job will be a higher-paying job than minimum wage or certainly welfare. The job ladder ascends to where people are proofreaders, they're editors. They have varying levels of responsibility and skills within being proofreaders and editors. And then you have the coders and the quality assurance persons. These are all jobs that individuals can get trained on from between two to six months, be able to work within this process, and have other skills they can apply to the larger job market. But where it leads you to is ultimately you're working in a broadband environment. You're going to see why you need that at home. You'll be able to afford the connectivity at home. It can benefit your family because across that network that now is in your home, you will have a portal tied into the benefits package that we would deliver through urban cyberspace. And all of a sudden, you have people working. They're making decent monies, but it leads to other potential opportunities. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I also, you know, have outlined that in a white paper that um once again, it was called Advancing Community Broadband, and which I've uh, helped publish in the last Broadband in America report to the FCC. So these are not innovative ideas in that I came up with something new. It's innovative in that it's a novel reorganization of pre-existing arrangements 
made to work. Mm-hmm. And what does it give rise to? It gives rise to the need for data centers, cloud storage. Right now, the cloud industry is one of the fastest-growing industries in New York City. It gives rise, ultimately, to data that needs to be analyzed and anonymized and scrubbed so it can be monetized. And it it drives the deployment of this infrastructure. Data centers, of course, are hubs where there are, where there are co-location centers for fiber optic connectivity. If we also then think of the rooftops in our in our urban centers, then those rooftops become places where we can do super Wi-Fi. So you start to get ubiquitous metro scale. But that same model can be expanded to rural areas where it's more of a regional play, and we look at how we connect um, key infrastructure, both electrical and Internet, using universities, using existing buildings, and which can basically build upon once again, the broadband stimulus investment. So that's sort of the vision and the uh, procedure methodology where I see us being able to take advantage of this unique moment in time and direct the type of investment that can make it happen, which mm-hmm. is why I focus very much on social venturing, small focused investments that fund an ecosystem of companies, and then that's how you grow it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then again, it's going to require a certain level of um, insight. It's going to require a certain level of planning and so forth. You know, I think one of the challenges that comes from this is the um, is moving from the idea to the reality. And mm-hmm. do we get hung up about the fact that well, you know, the FCC creates uh, process and procedure, but I can't influence that here in my little town of uh, you know, a tumble or my, you know, community here in Harlem. But, you know, there's a there's an idea to do something different, to do something better, but I'm not quite sure how we get from here to there. You know, it's a, in fact in Kansas I had the conversation with someone mm-hmm. who goes around the state and you know and they meet with organizations and they're trying to get people motivated to, to you know use broadband, find new ways to use broadband, find old ways to use broadband better, you know, whatever. But the problem will be three days later after hitting town, you know, everybody gets all excited for that first 24 hours, and then it just kind of, huh, it's sort of sag. And, well, and that's, I think that's, that's important what you're saying, Craig, and I think you have to be participatory and reach out to everyone, and then there has to be a champion that makes it happen. Mm-hmm. That's why I talk so much about capacity bringing. It's not so much that you can go and build the capacity of these places. They don't have it. They don't have the expertise. Um, and I think it was wrong-headed to basically say, I can't bring you this, this infrastructure unless you can show me how you need to know how to use it. Because when I built out the Internet, along with my colleague Robert McClintock, in 1994, who knew what the Internet was good for? But mm-hmm. we had a social vision. We had a vision of equity and inclusion. So there's a value system here that should empower that vision, and everyone has to have it because you can't do anything in this society without access to the Internet. But more so, you have to come, and when you build these networks, it's not build them and they will come. Build them and provision with the kind of content applications and services or even the economic model that makes sense in that particular area, and it will stick in that community. So it has to be a larger vision of where you are today and what you want to become in the future. That's not necessarily something that is incumbent. That's not necessarily something that's native. 
That's something that has mm-hmm. to be applied from the outside so that it's almost like knowledge transfer from the university, such as what, thankfully, Blair put forth in the National Broadband Plan. So it, it it's now reached the public imagination, you know. So, you know, I think that's the idea. And the American um, society said, hey, we want to have state-of-the-art education where it's immersive and it's 24-7. Go, go to Korea, South Korea, and see what they're doing. I'm a, I'm a mom at home, and when I turn on the TV, I not only have Nickelodeon or their version of it, I also have Sesame Street. I also have, I mean, there's all sorts of things, right, because it's a ubiquitous Internet. So if we're going to be a, a society with an electrical Internet, an automotive Internet, an Internet of building and things, that is all-inclusive. If not, you're going to have something beyond the digital divide, right? You're going to have whole communities that are left behind when other places are enjoying amazing opportunities to make money. Right to change their mm-hmm. lives, so it's a value argument. It's an equity argument, and it absolutely makes sense if you look at sustainable development and and view what's going on in underserved parts of the planet that are leapfrogging America. Right, fastest growing adoption is in Africa. Companies are growing up there that you would never have imagined. Microfinance is moving beyond that to consignment models. All sorts of things. Mark Cantor raises funds from Google. Grameen Bank goes to Uganda, and what does he do? He builds a vibrant app community, applications development community. Then it gives rise to a telemedicine community. So the issue here in the United States is not that we aren't doing it, is that we're doing it in a disaggregated fashion. It hasn't been converged because we aren't having those types of strategic conversations as far as how do we take advantage of what's been invested, where the investments are going, and then what are the opportunities to create these applications that basically are essential to people's lives. See, for me, this is not about telecommunications. It's about the delivery of essential services to Everyone, and it's tailored to that individual. Because once it becomes ubiquitous and it's on demand and just in time, everything's personalized. So we have to think about what does it mean to be a completely hyper-connected nation where, as some people are saying, it's a digital civil rights movement where everyone has access to this. But to what makes sense for them. Uh If I don't want to get on social media because I'm – an older person, even they are on social media, well, then I should have the ability to get to my AARP services or the ability to be in touch with my nephew, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's those kinds of things that have to be thought about. So it's human-centered application development in the midst of also focusing on how we figure out how to put in place what to me would be a hybrid universe, there's some places where you're served by the incumbent. There's other places where you're served by the local municipality. But we also have to address those issues that arise from those state legislatures that basically are impinging upon the ability of a local community to address their own, if you will, Internet destiny. You know, mm-hmm. So some of these things where legislators have come in and tried to defund 
the organization, I'm talking about North Carolina, that got the mm-hmm. broadband funding and then said that you wanting to have your Internet is basically harmful to a multi-billion dollar company, you know, that's the political nature of this. That's the enlightened public policy nature of this. And then there's an empowerment part of this. And we can, as I say, learn from what's been going on um, in the developing world. I mean, I'm lucky being here at Columbia because we have a huge um, community of social entrepreneurs who work together and who are increasingly focusing on the United States, though they also focus on you know, other parts of the world. So mm-hmm. how do we take the unique things happening in different parts of the country and then spread them out and tailor them, blend them, so that they can be applied to other parts of the country. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's an FCC-driven kind of thing or a government-driven kind of thing. I think they need to be a part of that conversation and potentially just be listeners. Mm-hmm. Now, would it be fair then to sum up what you're saying uh, by by stating that you know, we need to stop comparing the U.S. to other countries' broadband. I mean, that's everything. You know, all we get in all these discussions and arguments, we're better than whatever. We're worse than wherever. We're 13. We're 25th. So we need to stop comparing ourselves to other countries and start studying other countries to figure out what they're doing and how we can imitate whatever works for us. I think we need to compare ourselves to that because that's an important metric. And then I think okay. then we need to look at uniquely what we can do here. But I mean, it's only you know it's large scale incumbent corporations that sit and have an issue with the OECD statistical findings. That's real, <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, you can look at how we were number one, and how after an eight year period of disinvestment in broadband from 2000 to 2008, we found ourselves in whatever position. But it's, it only benefits the you know the incumbents to make that argument. Anyone who's focused on evidentiary development and and learning from others, but also using all the tools at our disposal, would have an issue with that. Mm-hmm. Anyone who has you know data is useful. Right. It is always a good starting point for discussions and 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 so forth. Um, we've got about six minutes left, and one of the topics I, I want to Get your your thoughts on is um, if you follow the news, a lot of the news reporting and and proclamations from different uh, corporations and whatnot, telcos and all of that. There tends to be this narrative that's happening that says you know uh, people of color, urban uh, communities, or wherever are you know they're using wireless to the max. Which very well may be true, uh, but my but the imply the implication of that is if we keep giving you know um, low income folks wireless access, uh, all their troubles are going to be over, and they will be you know and we'll close the digital divide and all that. Um, I sort of believe that wireless is an enabler of things that we do on the desktop, but it's not a replacement. And that if we don't have parity with the wired part as well as the wireless part, that we're actually going to be, you know, the, the urban areas, uh, low-income communities are going to be a step behind where the Internet is going to take the rest of the country. Now, am I fully off base with that, or, or, or what do you think? 
No, I don't think you're off base. I think it's important to understand that you can't have wireless without wireline. Right. Somewhere that network connects to a fiber optic connection someplace. So wireless isn't the panacea or the ultimate solution, but it is important when you note a lot of this has to do based on the cost and affordability. Mm-hmm. We have, no. hold on one second, I think we have a call coming in. Hold on one second, we've got a couple of calls coming in. Hello, okay. this is Gigabit Nation. You have a question? Yes, this is the other Bruce from Chicago. That's <laughs> 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 what I need to talk to. That's right. You guys are having a great conversation, and um, it's, it's, uh, both of you guys have just done a brilliant job of laying out the the, the 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 mandate and the ground rules as well as the opportunity. And uh, uh, this is just such an exciting time, and there's so many wonderful things going on, but we must take, as Bruce has been saying, a much more aggressive posture to the realities of getting these uh, resources engaged in, in our urban communities around the country. Definitely, definitely. And thank you for calling in, Bruce. I'm glad you were uh, you were you were um, on board with this. I think we have another caller as well. Oh, we just Bruce, let's them. make sure we touch base. Okay, I certainly will. Thank you. Thanks so much. All right. All right. Thanks a lot for calling, Bruce. Okay. Have a good day. All right. You too. That was uh, Bruce Montgomery, who actually I do plan on having on the show in, in a couple of weeks as well. Uh, to talk about things from the Chicago side and and what's mm-hmm. going on there and his organization, so we will um, we will definitely be weighing in with all the uh, industry uh, Bruces here that are <laughs> that are Great. getting stuff well, done. As it turns out, urban cyberspace is in communi- is in uh, discussions with how to begin to collaborate with Bruce and his colleagues at Gigabit Squared, mm-hmm. which I think is the model for what we can do in other communities. Which would which would be good, and I think our audience here, at least our regular audience, knows that we that, that uh, Gigabit Squared and Gig U and all these organizations have been on the show at various times and are definitely going to be part of the uh, part of the mix. We've got uh, two minutes, and so in the last, you know, in these last two minutes, uh, Bruce, what's what's your next step? What would you advise communities to do as a next step now after having gotten this good overview from you about where things are happening with Silicon Valley, uh, Silicon Harlem, how can other communities, you know, replicate this kind of success? I'd be very interested in having discussions with communities around how we can, in essence, put in place um, an urban cyberspace initiative. Silicon Harlem is one part of how we're looking at how to create what we think of as urban cyberspace, basically a cultural, technological state of affairs where everyone has on-demand everything through a device or however you connect to the Internet, and it's focused on your needs, your community's needs. But to begin there, we have to start doing, I think, some very serious strategic technology planning mm-hmm. in community with key public-private partners. We're starting to form that now in Chicago, and we're starting to look and see how that will take form in a New York City. But more so, it's also capturing the imagination, if you will, of our local elected officials. Congressman Rangel is focused on that and sees it as one of the key touch points that has to be now discussed across not simply the Congressional Black Caucus, but every district has to now look and see how do you both 
address this need, address your unique needs, and then align yourself with a trajectory where we know by 2015 to 2018 to 2020, we hit these key points in time so that what we ultimately do have is a gigabit nation. Right. Uh, Makes sense to me. Definitely makes sense to me. Well, this is going to be a wrap for now, but we're going to have to come back again and have this conversation some more and and continue to follow the progress of Silicon uh, Harlem. So, Bruce, Mr. Bruce Lincoln, thank you very, very, very much for being uh, my uh, guest today and uh, much continued success. Thank you very much, Craig. It's my pleasure, and thanks so much for the opportunity to convey these ideas. Great. And to our audience, thank you for uh, participating. Uh, We really appreciate it. We've got a lot of things that are coming up, so be back on uh, on the air next week, and I'll hope to... Hey, Craig, can I give out my email so folks, if they didn't have a chance to talk to me via the phone, can email me and I can have a conversation? Uh, With Lucky Land Plus, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.